Oh boy, my name is Robert Higgins. I want to leave you and this podcast right now and all your little voices. Oh boy. <laughs> oh boy. I'm Kay Tuxford. And this is episode 110 of Screenwriting from the Trenches, a podcast about the craft and expression of screenwriting in all of its forms from the perspective of writers just like you. Wow. Wow. <laughs> this week, we are having a conversation with Nate Golan, who's going to join us later in the episode. He is the showrunner, creator, and co-writer first season, but the writer of all the episodes in the second season of the independent series workshop as we continue week three of our independent television mm-hmm. show, Deep Dive. But first, we're back. We are back, baby. The strike is over. Maybe. Maybe. So we're, <laughs> so we're back on our bullshit, getting you up to date on the hullabaloo of screenwriting Twitter. We're back, baby. Take it away, Zach. It's just another day in screenwriting drama, screenwriting drama, screenwriting drama. It's just another day in screenwriting drama. It's another day in screenwriting drama. Good job, Zach. Excellent job, Zach. Well, yes. Okay. Zach always does a great job every week. We, we love every Zach week. for that. You know, Zach's performance, perfect, um, ready to go every week. You, yeah. on the other hand, me, yeah, I, on the I, other, I, other hand. Yeah, yeah I, I I flip around. We both flip around. We're flip-floppers. That's true. We are a pair of flip-flops. So here's the here's the haps, kids. The strike is, oh, well, maybe, is it over? No, I don't know. We don't know. But yeah, the, it has not been ratified. The terms right. have not been, because just like, just like the Writers Guild, if you've been following at home, folks, they they reach a deal that the guild thinks their their members are going to approve. Then they all have to review it, and then the members vote whether or not they're going to agree to that deal. So right. we're in that waiting phase where SAG is sending out the deal points to their members, and the members are debating whether this is good enough. Yeah, and the word ain't good. People are upset. I have friends who are voting no. And yeah, have, yeah, I think uh, I think the attitude is we've striked so long and worked so hard, and this is so important because of AI that it's worth it to hold out for the the most most goodest bestest deal or whatever they're calling it, the final last best good deal or something. It's worth it holding out because if there's any AI loopholes, they will be exploited, right? We know that. Yeah, there's a big one now in that the two biggest things that people seem to be sort of rubbing up against in the wrong way is the one that says that the studio that if they use your digital likeness in something, they are allowed to manipulate it like like the same way that that George Lucas did with Harrison Ford, like making him shoot after Greedo. Like they can do that shit to you after you're dead. That's yeah. that's one of the th- things that people are rubbing up against. And then there's a there is a sort of a loophole where there's a there's a difference between like a digital double and a performance capture. And there's one is covered by the guild and one isn't. 
Mm. And so what's happening is the way that the the contract is written, it seems like the studios wrote it in a way so that they can push it towards the the one that's not covered by this the SAG contract so that they can, I think it's mocap that's not covered by SAG, uh, uh, like weirdly. So it, I think that's what it is. And anyway, they're trying to push it towards that sort of thing so that they can go, oh, this is actually that. It's not what you think it is, the, the thing that's covered by the guild. It's actually this other thing. So it's not covered by the guild. So since it's not covered by the guild, we can do whatever we want. And if you don't like it, we'll just fire you and replace you with somebody else. Right. And so people are just kind of like, wait, why did we strike if we're still up against this bullshit? Isn't the, the whole thing of the strike like we wanted to get rid of these little loopholes? Then like things like getting paid like correctly and things, the, there was all these other little things that were just like, hey, didn't you want to close these loops? And the studio was just like, yeah, no. And finally, the guild was just like, well, you know, it's it's pretty good. And it feels like one of those deals like it was before, like in years past. The other thing that people are, are really sort of rubbing up against is that what the both the Directors Guild and the Writers Guild got is that in the language of the contracts, both the studios were forced to admit in writing that a director and a writer is a human being. And yeah. so there's no AI. You can't AI direct you can't AI write. Not like the that all that stuff got kicked out of the thing. But unfortunately for performers, there was no thing saying that if this movie is live action and it features people, it has to be paid, played by live actors, like or something to that effect. Right. That actors are in these contexts are defined as human beings, and they have to be so, and they have to be paid by the rates that have already been outlined. There was nothing like that in the contract. And since it wasn't, it leaves the door open to a lot of bullshit in the future. And actors are probably the most vulnerable to AI because of the way that things work and the way that the, the, the technology is evolving so quickly, especially with deep fakes. Mm -hmm. And so with these protections kind of left out, it really lines up a lot of BS, some of which we're going to talk about in a few minutes in the other drama segment of the week but these things that weren't in the contract people are really upset about and apparently fran drescher <laughs> was unbothered spoke out against some of the members well she said that the, the low level members the peons basically that people should you know be grateful and folks were just not there for that katie talks did you see any of that yes yes and i think you know, it's ironic because we have the same sort of pushback in all the other guilds and strikes, which is just like, yeah, if you're at the top, you're not feeling your paychecks arrive on time and, you know, right. and you can be litigious like Scarlett Johansson and sue anyone who deep fakes you. But if you're a up and coming or middle class actor, you don't number one, you need that paycheck on time. And number two, you don't have a whole team of lawyers to go after people. You're reliant on union protections and union going after these, these people for you. So 
it's a really nice privilege Fran has and and other actors who, you know, can take care of some of these things themselves. But um, it's a union for a reason, which means protecting the most vulnerable people in the union. And it's, it's a real mistake on her part to not realize that's her duty. Right. I, I mean, even at the top, there's a level of fuckery. Lots of notable stories over the years. Keanu Reeves refused to allow them to keep his likeness when they scanned him for the matrix jet lee famously was fired from the project he was supposed to play seraph in the matrix revolutions mm. and the matrix reloaded and he was the the director's first choice but when they wanted to scan him he was like you do realize that as a martial artist this is my intellectual my moves are my intellectual property the way yeah. that i perform is my intellectual property i built my career and it's not unfathomable to think that way in terms of martial arts that's what they do they have signature moves john claude van damme has been doing the same jumping roundhouse kick for the last 30 years you know what i mean like that's his move that's his signature jet lee same thing his the styles his technique the way he moves like all that stuff is intellectual property to that actor and the idea that you would be able to duplicate that you know what does that do for me you know what I mean? That I, th if you have my stuff, then you can just put me in things that I don't want or make me do things that I don't want to do or pervert like my stands, my movements and do something that I don't approve of, you know, yeah, what I mean? like that I, kind of stuff. I think also, yeah. And then there's this idea of like, okay, so let's say you get scanned and you're Jet Li and then Oh, we want to make a animated movie. Let's just put all of Jet Li's moves in a little like character, you know, mm -hmm. to do kung fu. We have it. We have it all as property, or we can have anyone essentially and make anyone do it or put it anywhere. And yeah, it's basically selling the thing you've perfected as your, yourself as a performer and an artist. And I don't disagree with his perspective. It's very. I, I'm glad he was thinking about that even then, even though it lost him the job, because it is absolutely true is we're paying people for their, you know, their art, their ideas, their creative decisions. And then if we start buying those decisions, you know, or throwing those into AI, suddenly you're losing that uniqueness and they're losing, especially for SAG, they're losing a chance to work and a chance to make money and a chance to also continue their brand. So I guess this is all me saying, if you're out there and you're listening, SAG members, I understand that everybody wants it to be over and go back to making movies because we love making movies. And I hope you I hope you love what you do. But this is such an it's such an interesting sticking point. It's 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 worth worth it, I think, to vote no on if if you feel that way, because every loophole will be exploited. We know that. Right. We, we 100%. know that. Yeah. And it's and it's it's already happened. It's already done. It's a classic, you know, talking out of two sides of your mouth type of, uh, you know, exploitation. We've come to realize it's just part of corporate America where unless you literally get it in writing and say you can't do this xyz for this reason and even then if there's a fine they might do it anyway just pay for the privilege of fucking you over this yeah, is just that's me. the thing this is just yeah. me ranting about late stage capitalism at this point but you know get that shit in writing don't trust them worth an inch it's, it's a company it's a business and their only job is to make more money and they'll do it 
while starving out the people that are actually making the product. No, but you're right. You're absolutely on the money because that's one of the other sticking points about the contract is the penalty for doing these things to getting caught stealing an actor's license is a fine. Yeah. And it's, and then it was just like, you know, it's like, how much of a fine is that going to be? And it's just like, oh, okay. So yeah, you really don't give a shit. You are going to do these things. You are going to exploit us. And you, you're you not even trying to hide it. Like <laughs> you, you're setting the rules you know, already for your own like fuckery. And speaking of fuckery, this the this whole next thing should just be like Warner Brothers. Here we go again. <laughs> and like, ugh. So the first thing that we have on the clown show that is Warner Brothers Studios right now is about Coyote versus Acme, which we talked about last week. And they it got it got backgirled. Yeah, it, well, yeah, first it got Batgirl, but now they're they're being allowed to shop it around after the backlash hit and several high profile filmmakers apparently canceled meetings with Warner Brothers as they were being labeled as a, a creative, unfriendly studio. And so after there was a lot of public backlash and calls from the certain members in the government for a an audit. Yeah, it was Uh, was just saying, how is this different than burning down your house for the insurance money? mm -hmm. I think that that should be looked at because how is it different? I know I I ranted a little on Twitter this week that I was like, well, if you want the tax deduction, make it a, you know, give it over to the public, Uh, make it make it public domain, because then you'll Mm -hmm. make no money off of it. And if that's really what you want, we'll we'll take it. But obviously no one's going to take my idea, but it's a good one. But really, there has to be consequences. And when it comes down to the same problem we were talking about with SAG is fiscal fines and consequences are only important if it actually impedes and takes away from the enough that they're not making a profit off of it. Right. And until you do something like that, they will, you know, go ahead pay a fine and do it anyway. And, you you know, the the cancellation of creatives not wanting to work with Warner Brothers, that's probably, I think, the most telling thing because these choices is going to make them cut off their own arms, so to speak, in the industry, which is if no one will work with you because they know you'll trash their project in the middle of working on it and putting in your heart and soul for years, then they won't be able to make movies. So... It's really interesting what's going to happen here, but leave it to Zaslav to push everybody's buttons. And also this week, he said the writers were right to ask for all those things that they asked for as well. Um, But he thought that they were getting overpaid. And I think that's really rich coming from a guy who's getting 200 million a year. Right. That that was the other thing that I wanted to, to, to talk about where Zaslav came out and you know, in saying that the writers were absolutely right to ask for the things that they asked for, then everybody was just like, well, then why the fuck did you have us out there for 148 days on the fucking line? Like, if that was the thing. And like, why did the shareholders have a really shitty quarter? Because, right. you know, stocks tanked. It, if, if, what I'm hearing is this would be preventable. You could have you could have been UPS. Right. Exactly. So you, you just could have, like, done the thing. You knew that they were in the right. But you chose to let people stay out of work, hundreds of thousands of people out of work. Yeah. Because you were being a dick. 
And wow, just wow. I'm like, who who are you talking to? Do you even hear the words that are coming out of your mouth? before uh, you He say can't it? hear like, because he's wearing his denim jacket up to his ears and it's blocking it. Uh, well, he wears denim on denim. But speaking of AI, you also are noting the Edith Piaf movie. Yeah, they're apparently the Warner Brothers music group again. <laughs> Warner Brothers, they can't stop themselves, can they? They can't. They just can't. They apparently, they are going to work with Piaf's estate to make a film titled Edith. It's supposed to be a 90-minute film that will use AI to recreate Edith's voice and likeness to narrate this movie about her life. Hmm. And this is what people are talking about. This is the kind of shit that they're literally talking about putting words in a dead woman's mouth. Yeah, absolutely. And wow. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, usually when it comes to biopics and things like that, they usually have some actor who comes in and really brings like a texture and a dimension. But we're really looking at they're going to just kind of well, that's the thing, because they do render have her a, from what they have. Yeah, they, there was a movie made called La Vie en Rose starring mm-hmm. uh, Marion Cotillard a few years back. It was no, it was 2007. And it feels like a few years to us, but it's, it's yeah. more time. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ, we're getting old. But, you know, it's just they've done a movie about her life and I haven't seen it, but apparently it's very good. There were a lot of people who were upset because they're fans of the movie and saying like you we've already done this movie not that you can't do another one of course there are you know a bunch of people that have multiple movies made about their lives but this one seems so perverted or so perverse and people you know once people die you you know you never know who's going to be in charge of people's estate i can't speak for them i don't know what their their reasons are for it but it just feels gross it's weird. You know what I mean? It's kind of like everything has Tom Clancy's name on things. Even Tom though Clancy's Tom Clancy, been, yeah. Yeah, he's he's been dead for how long now? Come on, guys. Like, oh, uh, and it's <laughs> just, but it like it sells. It's IP, you know what I mean? And so there's, in this sort of IP obsessed world, that's just, it's the kind of thing that these corporations do. They will literally make you talk after death because there are no protections against it. Yeah, and you can do whatever. We could have an Edith Piaf sex tape. Uh, yeah, that could be a fine, or you could have to get sued. But these companies aren't really deterred by that. No. Um, unless it's your movie is not going to get made, you're not going to get a return. You're, you know, for them, it's like okay, we'll put, spend a million dollars to make something to go away if it means we make two hundred million. You know, and right. and I think I think that's one of the problems we're running into is. No isn't enough. A fine isn't enough. Really, at this point, I'm like, you need to fuck with the chain of title and make the movie not releasable, which is usually what people do when there's legal issues. Like, Not only not releasable, but you can't take a tax write-off on it. You can't take a tax write-off on it either. Right. Um, It just becomes persona non grata. Like, if you you fuck with it to the point where, like, you know, it gets the, the penalty is this movie becomes dead to all and to all a good night like that's (laughs) you can't do anything with it until you abide by the contract rules the movie is dead and does not exist and i you know it's that we at at least at that point it's a nuclear option so it points you in that direction you know what i mean it's like if you're gonna do this 
if we're gonna if we're gonna get divorced, like we're we're all going down with the ship. Everything goes, everything burns. It's a fire sale. So I I think that's the only way. Like you have to be able to kill it. Like they can't make money on it in any way, shape, or form. Well, we've rented a ton, and I'm glad that we finally got our regular Twitter segment back. But now we are going to get into our interview with Nate Golan, who is the creator of Workshop. And so here is our interview with Nate. So welcome, Nate Golan, to the show. Am I pronouncing that right? Nate Nate Golan? Am I pronouncing nice that right? Nice work. Yes, right. I feel like about 75% of the time people get it wrong. So well done. But What's like, the mispronunciation? What's the wrong way to do it? Man, you name it. Gollum. Yeah. Mulan, Golan. I don't know. It goes on and on. There's this kid in the middle school when I was like low confidence who would be like, Nathan Gollin, Nathan Gollin. And I'm like, it's Golan. And, uh, <laughs> and then one time I ran into him when we were in college. And by then I like, you know, got cool and coming to myself. And he's like, Nathan Gollin. And I was like, shut up, dude. Like, how old are you? Like 12? Right. So it's Golan. You'd be Golan. Like, Your name is Dickhead. You're Dickhead. Yeah, that's really. You are. It is. Addictive. That's what it, I can see it. It's growing right out of your forehead. Just a giant cock. There, that's what it is. Um, <laughs> well, we're here today because you're do you have done what Rob loves more than anything, which yeah, is you have made. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Okay. We're in the middle of indie film TV month, and I, you know, I'm pushing this as I've said before because. You know, I believe that this is the future. You've heard me say this probably all through the thing. Anyway, Kate Tuxford can suck it. And we're doing this whole. I'm not against this being the future. You know I'm what? not against it. You okay. know what? Mm. Anyway, so we're Nate has done. Nate is actually is he is a pioneer because his show workshop was the first ever independent series to be picked up by Hulu. Um, correct. Yes. So massive applause for that. Congratulations, yeah. Nate. I know. I know it was a little while ago, but it's still heroic. The the the, sh but... the, the shine don't dull on something like that. That's mm -mm. that's good times. <laughs> that's good times. It's good, uh, it's good. It's good street cred for sure. Especially like now I have so many other things going on in my life, like other writing projects these days, and it's nice to be able to be like, yeah, oh, well, you know, I just had a show on Hulu. No big deal. No, <laughs> I do yeah, enjoy if, that. You know, no, because uh, I've you know I've been getting into the show because I was watching you know because I knew that we were going to have Nate on and I, I I've I it's you know one of those things that like I really enjoy is when you get to uh, promote something that's genuinely funny or genuinely like a good time and I th that's what I was when I'm watching the the show it's like I'm laughing out loud like through a lot of the episodes as so i was getting through a lot of them especially when like you know, Flagstaff shows up um that guy's hysterical <laughs> um just oh man that guy's hysterical so yeah he's great yeah but we're gonna i think the the thing that i've made in the past when we've talked about indie tv is i've i've talked a lot about production but we're focusing on the writing because i know a lot of you folks out there you know you guys don't really want to hear us talk about like indie stuff but you guys love the craft and i fascinated by the idea of indie tv as a, like the writing the craft of it 
you know, outside of the, the the normal sort of production means. And so I'm like wondering, like, where did the idea for workshop come from? I could warn a guess, but I, I you'll explain it much better than I can. Yeah, sure. So I came out here to be an actor and it was minimally successful for me the first like year or two that I was out here. And so I was paying money to go to these casting director workshops which they're not, they're still around, but they were like really a thing at the time where you would pay money to go into like a classroom setting with a casting director or maybe their associate or assistant or whatever. And you'd usually pay 40, 50 bucks at a time to sit in this 25, 30 person quote unquote class that was for educational purposes only. But the only reason you're, you're dropping that kind of dough for one night for a few hours is to be seen and hopefully they like you and then they bring you in for something. And so I literally was dropping all my restaurant tip money on these things left and right and getting almost nowhere. And finally, I did this one where it was actually a talent manager, this big management company. And instead of like the 25, 30 people normally in a classroom and you come up two at a time and you do, they give you a scene and they give like five minutes to prepare and then you just do like a little cold read. Instead, she had us do it where she wanted us to go one by one. And instead of people watching in the class, she wanted everyone to stand outside. And mm. it was so I get like this, like two page scene. And I stood outside for five hours. And in this parking lot with 50 other actors and actresses. And you can only like practice the scene for so long, two pages before it like becomes like in your mind. And right. I was like, you know, like how and so you don't even know what you're looking at anymore. So I started walking around. I'm a pretty outgoing guy meeting other people. And I had seen a lot of these people around and, you know, in these, these workshops. And I was just introducing myself. And I walked in this conversation with this young Asian young woman and this young African-American man. And we were talking and she said, wouldn't it be funny if somebody wrote a show about these workshops? And I was like, yes. Yes, it would. Yes, it and would. So I got, and so I got both our contact info. And then they ended up being two of the leads of the show along with myself. And I had never written anything. I was just out here being an actor. But I had been thinking a lot about writing stuff to put myself in just to, like, just to get out there more. And what did I know better at that exact moment in time than every little thing to do with like, actor life? And that's what that show was. Right. So, like, I'm wondering, in terms of, like, every television show, you know, they're always talking about the engine. You know, was it, like, was the the idea of an engine, was it hard to sort of use that, the idea of the workshop to stretch it from, like, episode to episode or season to season? Like, what kind of challenges did that sort of present? Well, if you watch the show, I feel like the the show starts where they these six main characters which were all archetypes of different actors and actresses in their 20s that i had met they like there's like the guy who's the most talented the group but is a total jackass and he gets on set and blows it for himself there's my character who's working non-stop to succeed but never gets anywhere you know there's the african-american character where he was formerly on a soap playing a hermaphrodite but he sees himself as the next denzel and he's trying to like change his type but no one everyone thinks this was one crazy wild great role they was on and then the female characters there's like two blondes that look alike and one's this uh like model who can't act away out of a paper bag there's this other blonde who is british but she can't do an american accent she can't book anything even though she looks like a southern belle 
And then there's the Asian girl who is just fresh off the boat, been in LA for like a day and has no idea what's going on. So it was, that was kind of like the engine was they meet in these workshops. Everything's about these workshops, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then a lot of the comedy was actually, we'd have these cut to scenes of like their, their other part of their lives outside of it. And it just like, we can only do so much about the workshops. And so starting in like episode six of season one, it starts being more and more the daily stuff, you know, the side jobs, the auditions, the, you know, the other stuff, like the dating, that blah, 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 you know, whatever it was. And it just be, it kind of like morphed into more about like that kind of show, even though right. the, the idea was at the beginning, it was like about these workshops. But I think that's, I think that's like par for the course for TV shows as they kind of expand is you know once we once we get the workshop then we're like well who are these people we've been watching what have they been doing you know reservation dogs rob and i were talking about that last week where by season three sometimes the lead character is not even in it and (laughs) they're like let's just explore this other character and what they've been doing and you know i think once people are like loving the premise and the show they'll go with you they'll be like yeah i want to know that too totally i mean in season two you know i mean the, the overall motivating factor of the show was the fact that, like, these workshops were obvious, almost scams and money pits. And right. somebody somebody needed to say this out loud. Like, I just felt like it was like actors will just kind of, like, do anything to succeed and just kind of take it. And it's like, no, these things are a ripoff. And, you know, and then for people who aren't familiar, I mean, not, you know, in the 2000, whatever year it was, 2010, 12, 15, something like that. They really cracked down. The state cracked down on these workshops and several people got in serious trouble. Several casting directors got in serious trouble for obviously abusing the system. And so I, and so yeah, there's a... two, I literally say at one point I go to a work, my character goes to a workshop and the, and the lady who runs the workshop is like, these are shut down. My character's name is Jeff. He's like, Jeff, it's a scam, you know? And then it's like the show just moves on to other stuff. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a, a big joke about that at the end of the first episode, I think, where all of the actors seem to believe that this is going to lead to, you know, their break. And then you get to the casting director and she gets to her car. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and like there's just like I was like, oh, that's that's like chef's kiss. That's I'm like, perfect. Just I, I loved it. Like that sort of thing, because there is I mean, to a certain extent, there is still that stuff. And anyone who knows there's a certain website that if you divide it by 16, you get 16, that the there are certain, you know, where there are emails you can't unsubscribe from, and they are constantly selling like these, you know, things like I'm the the friend of the assistant of an agent who can like, you know, <laughs> who can like if you give me $240 for an hour of my time then I can, you know, read your log line. Right. Yeah. Re- yeah read your right. log it's, line it's, and it's the, feedback. It's the writer equivalent of these workshops, I think. And and a quick what we always call pay to play, where like uh right. you're sitting there and you know, as you said, they're money pits. So I think many writers would resonate with this as well because, you know, like like actors, they they may especially ones that aren't local in LA, they're they're, you know, desperate to get that FaceTime and they're willing to do almost anything. So I think it's highly relatable. Well, yeah. And also, 
because the characters meet at, at the workshop, then it, you know, this the the sort of premise remains because you have these characters who know each other from that sort of environment and like where they go. Because I'm always like curious about Atlanta, how like you know, they start out being like this this idea about like, you know, you think it's gonna be about this one character making another character, managing another character who's on the rise, but the show is almost never about that, you know? And like, so you can sort of create something in terms of something like a workshop, you know what I mean? Where it starts off like that and then completely breaks off into its own thing. Like, did you guys like, and this sounds like you guys explored in, in like, you know, later episodes and seasons. Yeah. And I think it was, you know, it was like one of those things that, I felt like the characters themselves were such specific archetypes that they had their own, it made it easier to have them have their own lives, their own lives, you know, where they'd interact with everybody else, but they're off doing their own thing. And they were interesting enough and you knew them well enough because of like their specific archetype that you knew the things that they were going to run into and it worked. And I it easily could have branched off. Like my personal favorite character is character Matthew, who is like the horse's ass on set because he's just like, He's a talented one. He's like the really, really talented one who books everything. And then he gets on set and he's just, he know and he knows he's a jackass and, but he just can't help himself. And I just, I always felt like, man, you could just keep writing this guy in scenario after scenario <laughs> after scenario forever. Right. Well, you did work with a writing partner for on, on, season, on, one, correct. on season one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what, I just want to know, what did that, what did your writing room look like? What, like, how did that break down? Well, it was at Starbucks, um, <laughs> and we lived down the street from each other. It just happened to, it was the young Asian woman. She happened to live right down the street from me in Brentwood at the time, and we would meet at this one Starbucks, and she was, I felt like, you know, she was very true to her character. She had just graduated college and really had never experienced the day-to-day life of an actor beyond maybe, you know, at the time, a month or two. And so I, I don't really think she realized what was happening and i didn't really realize to an extent like as things were progressing like what how big of a deal it was at the time um but so she was really involved like the first half of the first season and then i just think that you know she just graduated college was you know just kind of living life and having fun and she had some off the wall zany ideas like your your favorite character being flagstaff she actually wrote that character and i I, wow so she was, I thought she was amazing to work with. And she always had these off, off the wall ideas. I was more like showrunner, you know, where I kind of like shepherded everything and kept the, kept the party going. And, you know, as, as time went along, I think she just kind of, I don't know what the best way to say it. It's just, it just got distracted. And she showed up obviously every day to act in it, but it was really, she was really there at the beginning, but I get it. As it goes along, you're 23 and you just graduate and you're having fun and, Etc. You know, I remember when I first came to LA, there was like a million projects that all had my interest. And you kind of are, you know, looking every direction. So I'm sure she saw other things that she was like, ooh, shiny along the way. And I get it. I totally get it. Like, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's all good. And it, it worked out. I feel like it. I was super grateful. You know, I, I, I'm a firm believer in that things happen for a reason. The universe kind of like steers you in whatever way. But I'm super believer that she was there for when she needed to be there to get the kind of like the the process off the ground and really create help me create some amazing characters and some really funny scenes to kind of like set the tone and then i was like okay this is how the show is this is how to write it and move forward 
So you guys didn't like whiteboard because you guys are in a Starbucks, but did you have like a like a document or did you have like a like a like a philosophy on terms of like what the episode should be like or the structure of the episode? No, <laughs> we kind of like you know I <laughs> that's I awesome. The part of it, I never read anything. You know what I mean? So it was kind of like it was, we were just kind of like figuring it out as we went. We wrote this first episode, you know, and it was short form episode, like six seven minutes long. We wrote it and we had already talked about who we want to cast and she brought in like her friend was the character the guy who played matthew my favorite character and i brought in almost the rest of the cast from just people i've met at workshops and i had kind of like written a lot of these characters with specific people in mind we did a table read for the first episode it played really well got you know like we were like okay this is this is funny like this is really funny and then as it went along i kind of I knew for my my own, you know, of course, at the time, I was still trying to be an actor. So I had kind of like built out through the season was like, what's my character's arc? And, you know, in the in season one, you know, he never booked anything. He finally books a commercial. It ends up being this like national commercial that plays ad nauseum where he's a giant beaver. And <laughs> it's just it's so embarrassing for him. You know, it's like this, like the hugest opportunity ever, you know, like in his mind, you know, it's like this right. big opportunity to be seen. And then he's playing like a giant beaver. And then like by season two, it's like, he's like made a bunch of money because it just plays endlessly. But then like anytime he's ever noticed in public, like the beaver, you know, and he's like, <laughs> so I knew money's ruined. It's beaver money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all that beaver money, baby. So self, I knew where the character was going to go, but beyond that, I guess we had kind of like had some idea of like where it was going to go. Like we knew the two blondes were going to eventually compete for some sort of project together, you know, since they were the same type and they see each other in auditions. But beyond that, I wish I could say that I had it all blocked out and structured and that, 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 but that would be a lie. But I think that's part of what's nice about these character based like situation comedies. Like since you know them so well you can just spring and go this is the episode where this is this particular casting call this is the episode where something funny happens in LA like you could it is like that recipe for a classic sitcom you know we've all grown up with and know so I almost start I'm gonna argue you know you're like I didn't know structure but you kind of have been watching this diet of structure your whole life yeah sure. that's sort of what like like when I like I don't know I was watching the new Frasier recently and I'm watching this the show and it it's done in the same old style of Frasier but I wish it wasn't you know what I mean like I I wanted them to bring Frasier into like the first episode is up online I'll put a link to it in the show notes but I'm watching it and as I'm watching it it's got like the full laugh track which in 2023 mm. feels cringe right it yep. feels so so cringe and I'm just like this show could doesn't need this like we don't need to like adhere to this thing like i think that's what one of the things that about independent television is i feel like there is a inherent structure to comedy and and sitcoms that we are all familiar with because we were raised on them and you know it's evolving now into that that latter stage like you know i don't you don't need the necessarily the device of of a, even the office, you know, of everybody, you know, it'd be one thing if somebody was doing like a documentary of of workshops, you know, like that sort of thing, and everybody was talking to the camera. You don't need it, you know what I mean? Like we all understand right. it. There's a there's you guys immediately start going into the interstitials of these like the uh, one of the funniest from the the pilot episode is the one where the two blondes have seen each other from like one like audition to the next, and it's just yeah. hilarious, and you get it. 
and you like it's just and it's a very simple scene it's just four chairs in a hallway and yeah. you're just like rapidly cutting through like this like you know different <laughs> things that they've both been up for it's like one was like an 80s movie and another one was like you know there's like a bunch of different things and stuff like that and i'm like we just get it it's funny and you don't have to really like do a lot of work in terms of yeah. like mentally there like you already get it and so I'm I'm just like encouraged by that. Like this is something that I feel like we all sort of like we were raised on it. It's an American art form. Literally, it's an American art form. So I I don't know. Like I don't feel like it. It's one of those things that I don't feel like you can no longer gatekeep. Speaking of which, you like you know how did this end up being picked up by Hulu? Because you gave me a little bit. We talked about it online. You said you were at a film festival. Yeah. So it was all kind of like an amazing. Looking back now like an amazing sequence of events really because you know we made the show on a dime you know uh uh kimberly leg that's the co-creator in season one she and i just kind of split the costs but the costs were little to none you know beyond like props you had to get and we just scrounged our way through locations and et cetera, et cetera. and early on the, the one thing i had going for it was that the african-american character his name is philip jean marie he had been on this now defunct what do you call it soap opera called Passions, and oh, he had yeah. been playing it, and he had been playing a hermaphrodite on Passions for two years. So we just kind of leaned into that, like I don't know, it's it's wild, like you know, it's such a product of his time. But his character literally was like painted half black, half white, and that was his character. In this was. As a as a, a lady from the nineties, I saw Passions, and Passions is the weirdest one, like where there's like witchcraft and yeah, yeah like it's. I'm not surprised. I never saw his character, but I, I buy it. If it was going to exist, it'd be on Passions. So we were lucky in the fact that that was kind of like the thing that got the show off the ground as far as just getting attention was he had small but very devoted fan base, like soap opera fans they are very passionate and we started getting write-ups early on from the show somehow they found it and like soap opera blogs etc they had found it and there started being write-ups and then there was like more and more write-ups and then this other industry blog that had a lot more eyeballs somehow they saw it and then they gave it a really favorable write-up and then we started getting you know just people talking about on youtube like like recording videos like talking about watching workshop and it was just kind of happening and i tried to lean into as much as possible reach out to everyone you know thank you you know thank you so much anyone everyone who was was talking about it and then it got i got uh, asked to speak it, it was getting so much attention like it was like more momentum every week we were releasing an episode a week and I got asked to speak on a Screen Actors Guild panel. And like next to me is like all these like TV, like actual TV people. And I'm like, this is amazing, you know? And, and so the show finishes airing. We've been written up all over the place. And I get, the show finishes and I sat down and wrote season two by myself in three weeks. I just like pounded out. I was like, just, it was just such a fun experience. And then I did a Kickstarter and raised a bunch of money and we shot season two. And then we had taken kind of like the stuff that people positive and negative. One thing that people didn't like was we did this kind of like shaky cam office at times, kind of like not like people looking at camera, but just kind of like the zooms, the shaky cam 
my humor that actually kind of like mimicked for season one, going back to what you're saying, Rob, about the um about the like the first episode where it's like the girls in the four different quick scenes was I really like Family Guy at the time. So it was always like these cut two scenes of Family Guy. So uh, uh, that was kind of like the humor. And so we got we were renting cameras in season one. Uh, the cinematographer, he, you know, got his own nice camera in season two. Season two is like a super glossy product. And we were able to get a few kind of like recognizable names to do co-star and guest star roles. Like Don Stark, who was Donna's dad in that 70s show. He's has like a four, five episode guest star in season two. And then like Josh Myers, who's also on that 70s show. He took over, you know, he's Seth Myers' brother. Anyways, he, he, he did an episode for us and just like stuff like that. And I got invited when we were done with it to pre- preview the first episode before it was going to air anywhere at the Anaheim International Film Festival. And we put together like a 10 minute episode and brought it to there. And then there was a bunch of reps walking around and essentially somebody was like, wow, this is a great show. Let me connect you with someone. Well, the person I got connected to was a person that I had sat next to on the panel at the Screen Actors Guild. And he had a connection to Hulu. They saw it. And they're like, great. If you can turn this into a half hour show, we really like it. We'd be interested. So we just kind of tweaked it, turned it into half hour episodes. And then next thing I knew, Hulu was <laughs> wow. was our show. It was our show for season two. It was really a wild experience. Yeah, That's that, awesome. Yeah, that would be extremely wild. And so what kind of stories do you find yourself leaning towards as a writer or even as an actor? In general now, you mean? Or Yeah. Well, I mean, just in, yeah, in general or, you know, now and then, like, you know, besides like, you know, the workshop of it all. Sure. Well, I think workshop is just, for me, a product of its time. I was really in that world so much, every, you know, in acting classes, living, breathing, acting. But the thing that workshop actually ended up inadvertently doing for me was I realized like by season two, the days I had to shoot my scenes, I was like, God, I just want to like run this show. Like, I don't really care so much. <laughs> the, the acting in it so much podcast about workshop, but what actually ended up happening was after workshop got the Hulu deal, it's kind of like you finish, it finishes airing, gets a bunch of like press, you know, we got written up all over the place. You're like, now what? You know, cause you got to, got to keep going and what have you done lately and so i had learned so much especially from season one about how to write short form content i'd never made a short film i never made anything except for except for workshop and uh so i wrote a six minute kind of like thriller kind of sci-fi-ish short film and i really took all the parameters i had learned from doing short form episodes of workshop where it had to have beginning middle end certain structure and it was like I had this really interesting concept is called briefcase and briefcase. I made somebody by that point, people were giving me money to make projects. You know, I wasn't like financing my own stuff anymore. And so somebody gave me a little bit of money to make it. We shot it. It's like really kind of like this kind of like moody noirish kind of piece. And I just followed the same kind of things I did with workshop where I was like, I'm just going to put it on YouTube to see how it does. And it ended up within a month, like two months, got written up by like 75 film sites around the world and got a pretty awesome Netflix deal. And it was a six Holy minute crap. Short. Congratulations. And so, thanks. So, I had only made two projects in my life, and both of them, one got Hulu and one got Netflix. And at that point, are you like 
I don't know if I can do three for three. I'm only going to disappoint myself. Do you, do you have that moment where you're like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> Not really, because it was like at that point, but like literally friends of mine who I've known from like, you know, we've been in acting class or a medicine workshop started messaging me and be like, hi, Mr. Golden. I was wondering <laughs> when you do your next project, you know, will you cassiate it? And I'm like, Mr. Golden. Yeah. Mr. Everyone Golan's in an acting class, like last year, like I mean, what? Like it was, it, but it was just like a, it was, it was very interesting time. But the reason I bring up briefcases, what ended up happening was, I really, I that that project actually did a lot in my now life because it was more like sci-fi-ish thriller, and I it made me really think about what do I actually like to watch? You know, like what is what are the projects that I like to watch? I like my favorite. All my favorite projects are all like sci-fi like grounded sci-fi like Gattaca is my favorite movie yeah so like yeah so that's the stuff I like I don't even really honestly watch that much comedy I watch like some but I really like that kind of stuff and so there's all sequence of events there's a reason that there was like a big gap in my resume like I, I did another project but then I moved away lived lived abroad for a while now I have like 10 new projects and most of them are grounded sci-fi because that's what i like to write and that's the stuff that's actually like in my current life like moving me forward because i feel like it's more like i can write that workshop type comedy and you know it's great but i really am more passionate about that other type of writing yeah can you i you said something really great can you speak more to because you were saying like the things that you learned about structure because i was wondering like if it was one of those things like if, you know you're you start writing workshop is it that thing where you do the, cause you know, if you see that in a movie, like the guy goes out, he goes to Barnes and Noble and he buys Save the Cat and a bunch of other things, you know, and so it gets like a stack of books and starts like, you know, reading and writing that sort of thing. Like what lessons of about structure did you take from writing two seasons of television? I think it was just really about how to tie in stories you know, I feel like a lot of times, like one of the things I'll always notice when I watch anything is like loose ends where they yep. just don't mm. tie in a loose end. And I'm like, why didn't you bring that story back in some way? Like uh, you like have some scene that like is interesting and that just never goes anywhere. Like to me, that's like fundamental is if you bring something up, then it needs to have some sort of like conclusion or, you know, at least brought up at least in some sort of, if it's comedy, and maybe at least like a cut to scene where it's like, you just kind of like, oh, yeah, a callback to that, you know, funny kind of like. Yeah. Scene. Like maybe it's a red herring, but like in a comedy, you're kind of like, it's, it's kind of what Shane Black says. And I know we've talked about it before, Rob, but set up some payoffs. Like if we, yeah. if you start telling us about it, especially for a comedy, we're going to wait for that payoff and that like shoe to drop. And when it doesn't happen, you're like, uh, uh, uh. yeah. Well, like, yeah. Yeah, because the introduction, like again, of Flagstaff as a character is such a it like you set him up in the in the previous episode where it's just like this this it's a it's a it's a runner. You know, you're going back and forth to Caitlin, I think is the character, the character of Caitlin, and you're yep. going back and she has the runner of the her being stuck next to this guy in the coral in the corralling area for these actors and stuff like that on this commercial that she's doing where she's doing extra work. And going back and forth and her listening to this guy saying that's really awful shit. <laughs> and then you literally pay, and then you pay it off the next episode where it's like, 
you're like you remember that guy that like you think like and the the character is talking like her roommate is talking to her and, and he's like no tell them about the guy and then this whole like it, it takes on a whole new context this is like constant setups and payoffs in the show and so like i think that's one of the things that 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 really goes for it and even like the things within the character like they're the one character who is uh british and she can't do an american accent and there's like setups and payoffs on like different things and she'll get certain things and then like hearing her read like you know lines where she's supposed to be from texas and like, <laughs> oh of all the american accents it's okay. so funny and yeah. there's there's a lot of that so uh, yeah there's definitely like a comedy i think is perfect for setups and payoffs because you know it rewards you for for watching the show and i think that's one of the and reasons why the show, right yeah. exactly and i think that's one of the reasons why workshop is so was so successful and is so successful in its execution because you you as you're watching like these jokes are coming back and being built upon each other not just scene by scene but also episode by episode I was going to say, I think I think also what works in, in workshops so well is because it feels true. Like I've been a script reader for many years and I get a lot of people who aren't in Hollywood writing the Hollywood story. And it lacks that kind of giving sometimes self-deprecation that feels real. I was thinking of like shows like the other two or episodes, you know, where you get that like insider actor life. Obviously Barry has a slant on it too, where all those things you're like, right. ooh, you kind of you feel it. You feel yeah. you feel these people and their pain and and their 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 desire so strong of a desire to succeed. And and I think it's I think that just kind of like elevates it again when you know your characters really well, especially for a comedy like this, because then you you get all those wonderful funny reactions. But anyway, that was my pontificating. We're here for Nate. So, but um, I was gonna I was a you know, you know yeah. it's really funny now that you mentioned like when I wrote that show. You know, of course it was just I was living it, and it was just funny to me. And there were so many ridiculous moments going on. In day to day life, you know, like everyone has a side job and you're just trying to like grind through life. And 100%. You know, when I was making season one, no one wants to watch a show about actors trying to make it. Like I got told that probably 50 times by different industry people that I knew, whether they were just other actors or whether they were like industry people or just what they're like, it, how did it be a show about lumberjacks? I remember somebody said that. just something <laughs> other than something other than acting. And I was like, but this is what I know. You know, I mean, like, I can't write about a show about lumberjacks. I, that's not, I don't know that life. Like I know about like what I'm ex experiencing at this exact moment. And that is acting. And then it's like, I definitely feel that writing something you are very passionate about you know sometimes i feel like when you're a writer you're just like oh i gotta like pump out some scripts you know like people want to see like material they want to see like what i can write they want to see different kinds of things well the times i've written things this has happened to me every single time i did workshop oh no one wants to show watch a show about actors okay i got the first ever deal for an independent show ever okay and then it was like, oh, no one wants to watch short films anymore. Okay, well, I made one mm. short film and I got a Netflix deal that made me more money than that Hulu deal. Okay. Oh, so then after I did another show right after that, and I through a breakup with this girl I've been dating for a long time, I moved away and I lived in Japan. And I came back from living in Japan and I wrote a book. I was just like, I just needed to write something. And somebody wrote me and said, 
no one wants to read a book about you living in Japan unless you're like a Shaolin monk or something. And I was like, thinking to myself, I was like, F you. This is like my experience. This is like what I'm passionate about. This thing happened to me. So I wrote the book and I published it. And then it it blew up for like an indie, like like self-published book. I sold a fuckload of copies and it was just option for the last few years. I mean, and it's like when you write things that you're passionate about, it finds a way. And when you're writing things just to fill a gap in your life or fill like what you think other people want to read, it it doesn't it doesn't do that. Right. Yeah, I, I I ran into this trap with many writers where they're saying I'm writing this next one to sell. Right, and I I I hear that phrase. They're like, Yeah, this next one I'm gonna write one. Just this is like I always say it's like year two in the biz. Like as a writer in LA, they they tell me this, and then the one they say I'm gonna write to sell. They also they spend forever working on it. They are never very passionate about it, and I've never seen someone say I'm gonna write one to sell that they actually sell. Because people right. can spot that uh, phoniness about it, they can they can feel that lack of passion. It does it does come through your words um, or those inauthenticity. If, like there's the, it's it inauthentic. Those, yeah, yeah, those details of like you know there the the settings of even in like the indie production of it, but just like four chairs in a hallway. You know, you can feel the authenticity of that of that experience of you know people who know what that's like to be looking across at a bunch of girls who all look exact you know exactly the same like that sort of like that feeling of of not being special you know <laughs> it just mm -hmm. like well you know you're just you're you're kind of peg that somebody wants to put in a hole and just like that kind of thing or even just like the idea of an actor's corral you know what i mean that's something that you never see when people are talking about it like that area that they stick to like the extras like here go over here so the stars don't have to look at you during the commercial yeah. like that kind of stuff that's, oh yeah background actors never get to hang out with the, the the lead and supporting actors yeah no, no 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 right there's like, had... a, there's like a there's like a totem pole of the hierarchy yes. And they're the uh, the background are treated below the ground like they're right. not even like on the <laughs> sometimes yeah sometimes they get their own crafty table they can't even touch the regular crafty table I don't yep. know if you've been on one of those sets where like I'm like sorry you're at the pizza and water table uh, yeah. these these M and M's are for the the, the supporting actors one hundred percent yeah. <laughs> So here's a question. Now, having done all of those things, would you would you make another indie television show if you had something that, you know, like even if it was like a grounded sci-fi thing or something or anything that you felt passionate enough about, would you attempt it again? Okay. I, I'm on I have I am I feel two ways about this. Okay. So going back to like that early time after that short film, I made another indie series. And by this point, I had a lot of street cred, obviously, right? It was two for two. So a lot of people signed on to be a part of it. It had like a whole bunch of like working TV stars playing guest star roles in it. I had big time casting director cast it and who had seen Workshop and loved Workshop, wanted to be a part of it. And I felt like by the time that one came out, which was, it, we released it two years after Workshop got the Hula deal, the landscape was already changing where it, didn't have as it didn't seem like it just had the opportunities to even grow workshop had like workshop i felt like was in the sweet spot where it was just like you weren't getting inundated nonstop with everyone's like things that they were filming of like of themselves or whatever would i do it again i would do it again 
if I had guaranteed distribution ahead of time, if I knew where it was going to go, if there was already so many interest in the show ahead of time, then yes. Uh, I think otherwise, I just don't, I don't know. I think that like I had mentioned this to our mutual connection, uh, Cindy. Right. Um, I had mentioned to Cindy that it's just a matter of where, where does it go? Like where she asked me, where would this, where would this, how would a show achieve what workshop did? And I said, maybe it was a podcast that blew up or maybe it was, uh, maybe it was like, some sort of like TikTok short form series that just caught fire, you know, something like that. I kind of like the poly that, couple. I'm, I don't know what that is. Well, they, they blew up on YouTube. They're part of the, the, uh, like they, they started this little thing where it was just this, this poly couple and they were just filming themselves on TikTok and they had their own community and then it just sort of blew up and then they, they spread to Instagram and now YouTube. And it started out as this very like, bare bones shot vertically and then it just sort of switched to the horizontal you can tell he went legit yeah. they switched somebody to somebody was like hey yeah right and so you know the production value went up and everything you know you could tell it was just shot it wasn't shot on a phone you know you could just tell that sort of thing but yeah there's a lot of there's some stuff that's coming out of that space like that yeah and i have a friend um who i've known forever uh who had a show that I'm not sure if she created, but she at least was a writer and then like show ran the show on Snapchat. Mm-hmm. And that was like a real gateway to her. Now she's a, a staff writer on, you know, a TV show, but that was like her gateway, kind of like how workshop was for me. It was really, that was her gateway to moving forward. She then got into one of these prestigious, you know, studio, what do you call it? Like programs. And then, Oh, the fellowships, yeah. fellowship. the fellowships. Yeah. Correct. And so all that came from, Really, I think getting that Snapchat gig to start off with, which is always short form. So I think there is, of course, there's always going to be ways. I think if you're really good or you just have something unique, something that people haven't seen before and people get excited about. And it's so hard. Like like you all were saying, it's like you cannot predict success. You cannot predict like, oh, I'm going to make this and it's going to sell. That's not how it works. You don't know what's going to gravitate. You're not supposed to write a show about actors trying to make it. You know, like, I mean, like, but then it does well anyways. And so right. you just don't know. But if you're making stuff it and it's good and it's just has whatever it is that gra- people gravitate to, I don't see why anything can't really make it. Well, I think it's time for our signature two questions, Kate Tuxford. Rob it's and I time. ask all of our guests this. So you are you are among the elite upper crust of the podcast now. Now, the Woo. most of the. The, the Rob usually asked the first question. Do you yeah, wanna... I'm gonna. I, I'm okay. I'm interested in the answer for the second question, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask the first question this week. So Nate, you've been talking, and it seems like you grew. You know, you you started out as an actor, but now you you consider yourself a writer. So, so do you do you like writing, Nate? Do you <laughs> do you like writing as a process? Yes, I. Uh, in fact, I watched this. Uh, I specifically think about this thing I saw. It's like this clip that some Oprah had a guest on one time and he was talking about about the way to find what you're truly passionate in life about is to look at all the times in your life that really stand out as like the happiest times in your life and to string them together. So make like make a line through all the things that were like the happiest moments in your life. 
And for me, the happiest moments of my life are writing and making projects, not just the successful ones, not just workshop, not just briefcase, not just whatever. You know, like anytime I'm immersed in writing a project, whether it be a book, whether it be a feature film, whether it be a pilot for a series, whatever it is, I can literally look back and string a line through. And those are the highlights of my of my life, honestly. So, yes, I like writing a lot. And acting does not play a part in any of that. It's just writing, producing, directing. In fact, I was at a thing a few weeks ago and I was talking to a young guy who was trying to be an actor. And so we were on a conversation just like this about like, like, and I told him, and I never thought of it until we, I was having this conversation with this guy, that the happiest moment I've ever had was on the show, the third show, one day, I was we were, I was directing it. I directed it. I wrote and directed it and wrote, uh, produced it. But I was directing it one day, and I had written the character for myself, but I had realized, forget acting. So I cast somebody else. And this guy was who I cast as the main guy was doing the scene. And I remember, like, I had this, like, moment where I just looked around, and I was like, man, I am happy. Hmm. Like, truly happy. Like, and that is like my goal in life to always find that happiness. So, yes, that makes sense. We, I always tell people, I'm like, either you get on set and you're like, I'm home. And when you get off set, you're like, how can I get back on set again? Or (laughs) some writers are like, I get on set and they're like, no, this is too overwhelming. I don't don't like it. But it sounds like you go in there, you breathe that sacred air and you're like, another, you know, and you could keep going, which I I totally love. I I also love being on set. I think Rob does too, but I'm not going to speak for you, Rob. Well, I, that's my entire life. I spend trying to get back, like, you know, the whole thing. As much as I love writing, and I do love it, but I love it. You know, I tell stories to bring them to life. I don't write just to write. Like that's right. sort of, you know, one of those things I want to see every because that's, you know, I think that steps back into something we were talking about earlier where, you know, it's about, you, you know, write something like, oh, I'm just going to write it to sell. But I don't I don't write anything that I don't want to watch. You know what I mean? Like it's a movie or a project or a television show, something that I would like be a 100,000% devoted fan of like week to week, like what's going to happen? You know what I mean? If that's, that's, that's where I'm at. And so, you know, but in order to do that, you got to shoot it. So, you know, that's pretty much the only place where I make sense as a human being. Um, (laughs) That's cool. That's cool. Question two, and this one is very divisive. Are you an outliner when you write or do you write by the seat of your pants? So are you an outliner or a pantser? I used to be pantser and now I'm like a loose outliner. I have just felt, I mean, I have a very specific, I know exactly what I want at this point as far as like, like what I need to do to achieve my ultimate goals. And that has to do with like, I'm in talks to direct a feature film, sci-fi feature film that I wrote. And then I have like, a, a, a bigger one, another ground, a bigger one after that. And then I have my big projects that I'm like really passionate about, but to get there to be running those or at least highly, you know, producing those, whatever I have to like take these steps. So I found as I've written more and more and more and more that especially for, especially for features, the loose outlining really helps me. I'm like, I'll just sit down and usually I can do it in like a day. I have this idea and I'll be like, I'll just sit down one day and just be like, okay, this is going to happen. And this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This has, and then like, 
here's the end. Like I it always has a beginning and an end. Whereas, I mean, I guess with like that short film briefcase, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted with that. But yeah, loose, loose outliner. Mm. I, I heard outline Rob. Yeah. I'm going to give this one to you. K Tuxford. Like, you know, I feel like Rob is our you, resident pantser, by the way. We try not to okay. give away who's on what team, but you're okay. on my team, Nate. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I don't think there's a right or wrong way. I don't think I just think that's just what I do. We do. That's why we we bring it up. The you know <laughs> like we you know, we get about not... half and half of the guests. So there's no you're right, there is no right or wrong way, but right. uh, we both we both feel passionately about our ways. So I always welcome to team outline, Nate. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for joining us. Well, let's move on to what are we rating, watching, consuming. I I'm still watching season two of supernatural you know because i don't know i shouldn't be taking i mean i shouldn't be taking so much of my time but you know i'm i'm enjoying season two but uh i also i'm doing more reading and writing this week because for a project that i'm i'm not ready to talk about but you know uh i also fixed a big section of the chicago movie i went back i had written this entire section and then I was like, that's not going to work because I was thinking about it in terms of like, you know, knowing that you have that deadline, I think helps me write. So I had to, you know, I went back and checked it, even though that the the Chicago movie is currently on hold until probably March. So I went do that. And then yeah. hey, what about what about you? What are you it, what are you working on? What are you watching? What are you writing? Whatever you want to share. OK, well, this Last week or two, I actually went on a Paul Verhoeven directed film kick and watched uh, RoboCop, which I hadn't seen in forever. Yes. RoboCop is so amazing. Like, I had actually only seen it once. And so it was so incredibly awesome. And then uh, I made made my wife and her and my in laws watch Total Recall. Uh, (laughs) I love Total Recall so much. Awkward. Watch Total Recall, and then I watched this movie that was recommended to me by someone who follows me on Twitter. Uh, I had mentioned at one point a few months ago, I tweeted something about how one of my favorite sci-fi movies of recent times is Upgrade. I don't know if you guys have seen Upgrade. Yes, I've seen it. And so I really like Upgrade. And so I think it's a Blumhouse film, right? Um, Yes, it is. It's a Lee Whannell movie. He also did, after that, he did The Invisible Man. Yeah, of course. Oh, the new also... one with Elizabeth Moss? Okay, so yeah. I saw that one. Okay. Yeah, so same director. and um, Which is honestly like the kind of like career track for myself I would like to have. Like I feel like that's really, I look at, at him and that's what I would like. So then I, I got recommended this other movie called The Endless. Oh, which... that's, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know those guys. They did, The Endless is like the sequel, isn't it? The, they have one that was like the first, the time called loop Resolution. One? Yes, yes. I've seen both of those. They're great. Yeah, so I never, I never heard of him. Some some guy recommended it, and so I watched the Endless uh, a few nights ago, and really liked that. So those are like the recent watches, and then a lot of features right now, especially since I'm in like feature mode. I have like feature stuff going on, and then I am currently I wrote a I wrote a new feature during during uh, the the Writers Guild strike, and so I have a new feature which is kind of like a follow up to the feature that I'm in, uh, you know in talks to direct. The one I'm in talks to direct is like a million dollar film. And then the next one would be like a three to five million dollar film. And they're both like high concept grounded sci-fi. And then I'm getting paid to write, just got attached to paid to write something that's like challenging for me 
and it kind of goes back to like that it's kind of like has that like workshop kind of comedy even though it's like ends up being a darker subject is i'm getting paid to write about a real person and a real company that rose and then fell the guy's like a very well-known super character so i'm getting based off a popular podcast that i got attached to write nice Okay, well, <clears throat> I caved and watched some scary movies. I'm normally terrified of scary movies, but I watched The Nun 2, more nunning. Yes, luckily, <laughs> luckily Nuns on parade. Yeah, I was going to say, with, with, a, with a martini, it was not too too bad to watch from the safety of my home. And then also my partner, Celia, she, she wanted to watch the Blumhouse movie Ma. Um, and that was more terrifying. And so I was like, cool, two <laughs> horror movies, peace, I'm out. I did it for the year. So I'm very proud of that. And then writing wise, well, I've been traveling. Wow. So I've yep. been doing a lot of handwriting right now. And I just got over my 40 page hemp uh, hump of the project I've been talking about on here, Feed Fifi. Even though I'm afraid of horror movies, I am writing one about a house sitter who is unaware that she is feeding a demon that she thinks is a cat so it is not i love cats so that's my in right there demon cat i was like i'm in so yeah i was gonna say and um rob what's our resource of the week i wonder what it could be yes our resource of the week is workshop seasons one and two which are on youtube for everyone to watch i i very much want to like encourage folks to watch these shows and stuff like that and give them some love. Although Nate has a, most of the episodes are a pretty high viewership count, but you like, you know, in terms of writing, like, or seeing an example of that structure. And I feel like that comedy structure that I feel like is if I don't I don't even want to, I mean, even like as Americans, we grew up with, but like those things are all over were broadcast all over the world. So if you grew up watching sitcoms, you know what I mean? Like that, that those formulas are inside of you. You know, you have those, you know, we've all seen the scrubs and the the cheers and the, you know, even the, the offices. Yep. Like, right, exactly. All of those shows are inside of us. And I feel like there's just, you know, like when Nate was saying, you know, the interstitials, like he was writing them from Family Guy. And I I never got that. I got scrubs. Like I felt like that was there were a lot, there was a lot of sort of like JD style, like cuts of like, you know, to these, these interstitials of the characters. Both, both of those use a lot of jump cuts, like cut yeah. twos for the joke. So I get, I see both. I can see both. Right. So I recommend that there'll be links to the, 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 there's a playlist on YouTube with seasons one and two in it. So there'll be a link to that in the show notes. I encourage you all to check it out. And like this, it can be done folks. I'm going to keep banging that drum. It can be done. Can be done. And that is our show. Screenwriting from the Trenches can currently be found on Amazon, Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify Podcasts, as well as KevinLMartin.com. Our screenwriting Twitter drama theme song was written by Zach Morrison and used with his permission. And hey, we'd appreciate it if you liked us or rated us five stars on whatever platform that you patronize. YK Tuxford algorithms for questions that we can and we'll answer in the show please email us at rob at bmofo.net you can also find us on twitter i am at perspective mofo nate what are you on the twitters nate n-a-t-e golan g-o-l-o-n and that's the same everywhere okay and i am at k underscore tux 
And Zach is at Zach Morrison 18 and these things, as well as my YouTube channel, where we on the Cinema Challenge series teach you how to make a movie for a thousand dollars, have all launched and are all linked in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that you will continue to do so. Now, stop procrastinating. Those pages aren't going to write themselves. Nate, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about workshop and being a part of Indie TV Month. It was was a pleasure. Thank you so much. much. I do really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. 